privilege we have to open our Bibles to study together. Please turn to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, on the heels of the sad story of the rich young fool, Jesus is going to give his followers a lesson in self-denial. As best I can deduce, Peter's confession that we studied in Matthew 16 happened in the summer prior to the crucifixion, almost a year before the crucifixion. The crucifixion happened probably 28 A.D. Of course, that would be in April during Passover. Peter's confession probably was the summer prior to that in 27 A.D. It was after Peter's confession, if you remember, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Being a Christ follower, being a Christian, is indeed the pursuit of self-denial. It is demolishing those idols of self-indulgence. It is sacrificing all to purchase that pearl of great price. It is submitting all and obeying the Word of God. We saw this last time. Here is this rich young ruler. He refused to destroy his idols of wealth. He would not deny himself that which he had earned, perhaps, and that which he treasured in order to follow Jesus. His life was full of pride. His life was full of self-indulgence. We know it because Jesus called him to turn away from those things, and he would not. To follow after him, Jesus calls you to a willing, humble faith, the faith of a child. On the one hand, it trusts fully in Christ, his person, his work, who he is. It depends completely upon him. Denying yourself any credit in your salvation. On the other hand, it's the result of the humble faith. It is repentance. It's turning away from all your gods and destroying those idols. You deny yourself. Now, this attribute of self-denial becomes the key characteristic of all true believers. Now, what we're going to see is in today's passage is Jesus uses that negative living illustration, the rich young fool. He uses that illustration to demonstrate that as believers, we must be engaged in the lifelong pursuit of self-denial. It's not that we're looking for ways to, to harm ourselves. We don't not into some sort of masochistic idea of self-flagellation or something like that. No, this is the recognition that I am not my own, that I've been bought with a price, and my greatest joy is not to serve my own interest, but to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, my Master. And so as Christians, we seek a life of ongoing sacrifice for Christ, His kingdom, salvation that begins with self-denial, and then following after that, Forever, we pursue more and more self-denial. That's our greatest joy and our greatest pleasure. We should do this on a moral level, denying our bodies and sinful, those sinful acts that our bodies and flesh craves. We should, do this with our, we should do this with our time, seeking how more and more through our lives we can dedicate to pursuing the work for the kingdom. We should do this with our, our money, seeking to sacrifice and serve the kingdom in terms of our finances In everything, we seek to benefit the kingdom and the master of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. Well, as you know, this is the opposite of most people's trajectory in life. The arc of life for most people is about more and more self-indulgence, not self-denial. As people get older, 
A lot of times their mindset is about hoarding their time and hoarding their energy and hoarding their, hoarding their talents and hoarding their money to be spent on their own self-interest with little regard to the kingdom or to Jesus Christ. Even many so-called Christians live that way. Well, this is such a great temptation. Jesus parks here for a while, this idea of self-denial. He calls us to the humility of faith, the pursuit of this self-denial. Today's passage talks about it. The next one talks about it. Disciples aren't really getting it. It's very obviously. They don't seem to get it. They're looking to receive their own glory. As you work your way all all the way through chapter 20, it finally gets to the end, and Jesus demonstrates some people who are absolutely worthless, a couple of blind men, beggars, whom he blesses, these humble men who have nothing, yet receive great blessing. And this is what Jesus is going to teach his men. Self-denial brings blessing. Self-denial brings joy. Self-denial brings contentment. In short, a a life of self-denial, I would say self-denial for the kingdom, for the sake of the name of the glory of Jesus Christ, that kind of self-denial is the way you will best honor God and find your greatest happiness. The pursuit of self-denial, if you make it yours, will not only get you into the kingdom, but it will lead you to the most God-glorifying, joyous, and contented life while you're here on earth. Now, you want that, don't you? I want it. So, let's study this passage together. Your Bibles are open to Matthew 19. Let me begin in verse 23, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter, verse 30. Follow along as I read aloud. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses and, or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of God. Many years ago, in the late 300s or, late, or early 400s, there was a fellow by the name of Paulinus of Gaul. This man was brought up in the privilege and wealth of nobility. He studied at the finest institutions. He became a, a litter politically in the Roman Empire. All across Gaul, which is France and Spain, he was sort of that generation's Bill Gates, so to speak. He was brilliant, and the work that he accomplished... Uh, uh, Gained him much, much wealth, unbelievable amounts of money. He had so much wealth that he was worth more and had more than many of the royal class. He eventually sat on the Senate of the Roman Empire, and not only did he have great wealth then, he had great influence. He had houses and estates all over Europe and all the attendants and servants that go with them. He was one of the most highly respected, influential, wealthy senators. Eventually, he would be promoted to become uh, by the emperor, he promoted by the emperor to become a governor. 
This all happened in his 20s. By his late 20s, he was not yet married, but in his late 20s, he married a girl named Teresia from Spain. Teresia was a Christian, and she began to openly witness to her husband about the truth of the, the gospel. In fact, she got her pastor involved, and the three of them would sit around and discuss the claims of Scripture, the claims of Christ, the truth of the gospel. And it wasn't very long before Paulinus himself was saved. He was convinced in his heart and his mind, and he became a believer. Right after that, Teresia became uh, pregnant, and very quickly she lost her baby. And it became apparent that they were not going to have children. And this sparked a thought in the mind of Paulinus. If he was not going to have wealth, or if he had this wealth, he would not have a generation to pass it on to, children to pass it on to, he should instead give all of it to the benefit of the kingdom of God. But that's what he did. He sold everything. All the houses, all the belongings. He gave the proceeds to help the poor. The money he kept, he used to purchase a a giant boarding house in rural Italy. And there he would house the poor and seminary students, which, by the way, are a subset of poor. (laughs) Seminary students would come, and the poor would come and live at this great boarding house. Eventually, he was so passionate about the gospel, he trained to become a pastor himself. He ended up pastoring a small church there in rural Italy until the day he died. Let me ask you a question. Who's happier, Paulinus or Bill Gates? There's no question, right? Not even a debate. We know Bill and Melinda, now now we know the, the truth. They've been fighting, they've been bickering, they have come to the point where, yeah, they can put on a facade of we treat each other in such a way, but there's all kinds of difficulty. They're praised. Oh, their foundation gives so much much money to all these things. But just to be clear, we all know that that doesn't hurt them at all when those gifts are given. That foundation makes more money than it gives away. doesn't change anything the way Bill and Melinda are giving. It's not sacrificial giving at all, even though they're praised for it. But here we have this man who gave up everything, and has far greater joy. And yet another person who has all the money he could ever dream, all the money he could imagine, and respected far and wide, and yet he leads an unhappy, discontent life. We all know that the greatest joy is to sacrifice all for Jesus Christ. We know this. There are a million illustrations of this. And even among Christians, even among Jesus' own disciples, there is this temptation, this siren call to wealth, to prosperity, to influence. I think we see this especially in American Christianity, do we not? You see this among pastors and churches. Jesus knows this will be a temptation. He knows this is going to be a, a prominent temptation for all disciples of every kind. And so here in Matthew 19, all the way to the end of Chapter 20, he teaches his followers about self-denial. He began with lessons we can learn after looking at this rich young fool as he turned away. So following the format of this passage, let's look at some things that he talks about in terms of self-denial. Three points, I think, we can deduce from what Jesus says about our own pursuit of self-denial. The first one is this. Number one, beware... Wealth is 
dangerous. Beware, wealth is dangerous. You see what Jesus said there in verse 23? Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. Wealth, Jesus says, is a dangerous thing. Wealth, which can be seen in terms of money or belongings or investments or perhaps even influence, wealth is a dangerous thing. It doesn't say it's a wrong thing, but it's dangerous. How so? Well, it prevents people from entering the kingdom. His illustration there of a camel going through a needle, we don't have to get into silly conjecture. It's just an idiom. Camels don't go through eyes of needles. It's almost impossible, if not impossible. It's very hard. Well, nigh impossible. Now, let me just say this. All kinds of sin prevents people to go into the kingdom, from entering the kingdom. Sexual pleasure, anger, bitterness, pride, the love of power, covetousness, greed, the list goes on. All these are idols that we talked about last time. These are idols that must be smashed, must be destroyed in order to follow Jesus Christ. Any one of those things can keep us from entering the kingdom. All these sins prevent true faith. But the dangerous thing about wealth is that it can buy almost all of those other sins. Wealth is particularly dangerous because it can provide you the means to sexual pleasure. Wealth can buy you the power and influence that you crave. Think about all the people who are wealthy, who have influence on our society, even though they have no business being an influence on our society. Wealth can buy you the ability to carry out your own bitter desires. You're frustrated. You're mad. You're going to prove something. Wealth can fulfill your greed, your covetousness. It can give you everything that you could possibly want. Wealth gives wings to all those sins. I wrote down in my notes why wealth is dangerous. In my own pursuit of self-denial... Why should I remember that wealth is dangerous? Why would Jesus bring this to the attention of his disciples, this danger of wealth? We heard it from Timothy earlier, from the book of Timothy, that even sucking in the man of God, even sucking in believers, people who love the Lord, are sucked into the pursuit and love of money. I wrote down, wealth is dangerous because, first, what I just said, it can afford you the means to indulge most sins. We're talking in our family group the other day about... Uh, the, the subculture of women's handbags. Did you know that you can pay $2,000, $20,000, for a purse? Ladies are all saying, of course, Pastor John, everyone knows this. <laughs> Some of you ladies are hiding your purse right now. <laughs> Why would someone spend that kind of money on an item that probably in terms of materials and craftsmanship, at best, maybe a couple, $300, something like that. Why would a person spend that kind of money? Well, it's pride. It's presumption. It's a desire to be seen by others, be recognized, oh, she has that kind of brand of purse, or, or perhaps even be recognized by the even wealthier people, though, oh, she didn't just spend twenty grand on a purse. She spent two hundred grand. I, I know that purse. Money has given wings to that sin of presumption and pride. Money can buy almost any indulgence. That's one reason why it's so 
dangerous. It is among the wealthy we see the most deviant and exotic sexual fantasies carried out. We find among the most wealthy the the ability to influence politics and power and society. It's unbridled power. Not to pick on Bill Gates too much, but suddenly you realize he has never been an epidemiologist, not even a doctor, and yet he's the expert on everything that has to do with this flu. Why? Because his money. His money has bought that influence. It's bought that power. The lobbyists, the senators, the congressmen, so many, even, even if they begin modestly, they're consumed with wealth, they're consumed with that power, and the money buys it for them. Wealth is dangerous because it affords you the means to indulge in most sins. Second thing I wrote down was wealth is dangerous because it provides a life of ease and comfort. Now, you may never use your money to buy a $200,000 purse, but you might use it just to make yourself really, really comfortable. You might use it to just indulge in whatever you want. You may not use it in the ways that maybe some super wealthy have in terms of stuff and power, but your objective is just to be as comfortable as humanly possible. Is that what God's called you to? Ease? A life of comfort? No work? Retirement early? Do as little as possible? Is that what God has called us to? Third danger, another reason wealth is dangerous, wealth often is earned through great effort and thus pride as a result. I, me, I myself, I did this. I earned this money. This is because I'm smarter, because I'm more hardworking, because I'm more industrious, more disciplined than everybody around me. They would have money if they just work as hard as me or be as smart as me or as driven as me. You have that kind of wealth, especially if it's earned wealth, it draws you into the temptation of great pride. And this attitude is not just acceptable. This attitude is, is really promoted in our world today. Go out there. Make something of yourself. Get the pride of having accomplished this or that. Gain in that pride. Another danger, perhaps related to this, is that it, many people interpret Wealth as the sign of God's blessing upon their lives. Many people have all this money and they think, well, you know, God must not be too unhappy with me. Look at how nice my car is. Look at the handbag my wife carries. Look at the cars I drive. And people like this, they love those Old Testament, Old Covenant passages about God blessing Israel if they live with inside the covenant and they claim those things as though God owes them some sort of financial blessing. The irony is, given what Jesus is saying here and what happened with the rich young ruler just the passage before, maybe money is a curse, not a blessing. Maybe God has given you wealth because his curse is upon you to draw you away and and reveal your own wicked heart and to suck you away from the gospel. Maybe it's not a blessing. Maybe God is cursing you. How do you know the difference? Well, you begin to pursue self-denial. How do you know if you're genuinely believe you have this wealth and not have that pride? Well, you begin to pursue this idea of self-denial. One final danger that I wrote down, and maybe you guys can think of some more, that's this. When circumstances are bad, if you're wealthy, there's a temptation to find solace in your wealth rather than in Jesus Christ. Would you be tempted if you had a lot of money and things were going bad and you had a hard day to sort of 
bless yourself a little bit? Yeah, again, people talk like this all the time. I deserve. I owe myself. I've had a hard time. I was in a church one time, pastor of a church uh, one time, and, and the church was a, really a miserable church. It was a terrible church, and they treated the pastor terribly. They didn't pay me hardly anything. They didn't support. It was just a rough place to be. But for some odd reason, I, I can only attribute it to some sort of glitch in the accounting. For some odd reason, they had an annual budget of $10,000 for me to buy books and go to conferences. So when I had a particularly hard day, you could find me in my office browsing Banner of Truth, looking through these book sites, and I wouldn't just buy a book, but big sets of books, looking at the latest conference, what conference can I go to? I used that money to sort of placate myself and, and sort of pet myself and make myself feel a little better about what's going on. I think wealthy people do this, right? What a temptation that would be. Instead of finding your joy in Christ, instead of going to Christ and, and begging Him for, for help and assistance and, and you're struggling, no, you go to the Amazon website, start ordering things. And, of course, you get these things, and it brings greater pride. It brings greater confidence. It gives you more desire for more things, and you're down this spiral of the danger of wealth. There's a pastor. I can't remember who it was, but there was a pastor. I think it was at one of those conferences I went to. There's a pastor who started to find some problems. he started to find some prominence in the Christian world. He began to, to teach and preach. He began to write books, and his books were being sold everywhere. And he told the conference, he said, with some of the money he made, he had a plaque made that read, Remember the Rich Young Ruler. And he put that on the inside of the door of his office so that every time he walked out of his office, he'd remember the futility of pursuing wealth, the necessity of pursuing self-denial. Now, before we move on, please note, Jesus did not say it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom. He said it is difficult. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus does not fail to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. God can grant anyone faith. This whole idea of it's difficult for a rich man, this business is from man's perspective, not God's. The fact of the matter is, every person needs the same miracle done on their heart. God's Spirit must regenerate us for faith and repentance. It's not harder for God to save a rich man. God is sovereign over all salvation. Indeed, He could have zapped the rich young ruler with a desire to repent and enter as a child. This warning is from man's perspective. Jesus says, Jesus is saying, you guys need to be aware of the danger of wealth. From the human perspective, wealth keeps people out of the kingdom. Wealth keeps people, wealth lures Christians away from kingdom work. From the human perspective, we ought to pursue not wealth, but contentment and joy and self-denial. So, note here, if if you're taking notes on terms of how can I deny myself, maybe God's blessed you. Maybe you've grown. Maybe your wealth has grown. Take note. Beware of wealth. It's dangerous. The second lesson begins in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit down on his glorious throne, 
You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Point number two, hope in the next life, not this one. Hope in the next life, not this one. Do you hear what Peter is saying? I imagine that some of us are thinking the same thing as we hear Jesus' words about self-denial. Oh, great, uh, another message on self-denial. I mean, Jesus, are we supposed to live just this austere life, never buy myself an ice cream cone or anything? There's no pleasure at all. Sell everything, give it all to the church. Pastor, you've been preaching this for years. How about we start with you? You do that, and I'll think about it. Sell everything, give it to the kingdom. Peter goes even further because he had already gone further. Peter says, look, Jesus, we've given up everything already to follow you. Verse 27, are you saying, Jesus, that this is it? This is eternal bliss right here. We'll always have little to nothing, nowhere to lay our heads, no home, away from family, nothing but thrift store clothes, an empty money black, a dull sword. This is it. This is the kingdom. This is the glories of the kingdom. Now, Jesus responds to this question in two ways, a twofold way. Matthew only records the main way that Jesus responds to this question, and I want us to see both. I'm going to read from Mark 10. Now, just don't let this bother you. Sometimes you'll read the Gospels, and one passage will put a little emphasis on something else, or it'll include something else. Uh, nowhere do the Gospel writers claim to account for every single word that Jesus said in whatever particular in, in, in situation, right? He doesn't, none of these Gospel writers say, I'm giving you every single last word, They're giving you an emphasis. They're giving you a summary. And that's what Matthew's doing here. And he's drawing attention to to Jesus' main point here. But there are two points, and I want you to listen to Mark 10, 28 to 30, and see if you can hear that, that other point that Jesus makes. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I'm sure you caught it because I made it really clear. Jesus says... Now in this time, in this age, we will receive houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land, of course, with persecutions. Now, Jesus is not a prosperity preacher. He's not saying all Christians will be rich and dominate and dress like the Kardashians. There are too many other things that Jesus said that show us he was not a prosperity preacher. He believed in persecution, and he didn't believe that every Christian was called to persecution, but many would be. What's he saying? He's saying there's often physical blessing by being in the kingdom now. It's a mixed blessing. It's mixed with persecution. It's mixed with hardship. But there is even physical blessing that you don't have to worry about. If you're in the kingdom, you receive that blessing. Now, this is not some covenant promise that Jesus makes. Every single Christian will have a house He's not saying that. It's a general truth. It's more like a proverb. And if you are 
part of this church or part of any healthy church, I would hope you would understand, you know this to be true. Believers love to bless one another. Believers in a local church become family, ohana. They love to share with one another. If you fast forward to the early days from this time to the early days of the church, what do they do? What do they instantly begin doing? And no one commanded them. We don't see the disciples saying, now here's what you guys have to do. No, they just, of their own free will, because they love one another, they begin to sell things and give to those who are needy in the early church. And this is common in a healthy church, to share, to bless one another, to become family and take care of family in that way. This is what I believe Jesus is referring to, the blessings, the, the familial and even material blessings that we receive in being part of a local church. There's a uh, fellow, he's a YouTube creator that I watch from time to time. He's a, I believe he's a Christian. He's talked about Christ and the Bible. Seems like he understands the basics of Christianity. I believe he is a Christian. He does some uh, homesteading stuff. Pretty sure he's a believer. But one of the things he recently talked about is because he lives so far away from a, a church, he talked about leaving his church, and he just does church with his immediate family. I think there's some theological problems with that. But he admitted in this video that by separating from his church, there was this sudden emptiness, this gap in fellowship and assistance, physical assistance that a local church provides. In the body of Christ, he had a group of families standing ready to support one another. In your commitment to the local church, you commit not just for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. You have a problem? There are many others there standing ready to help you. You have a construction project. You have others that would love to come over and help you. You have a plumbing problem. You have a spiritual problem, an emotional problem, a health issue. There's a church body standing ready to pitch in. Men at NBC, you have, I don't know, 150, 200 other men ready to help you. Ladies, you have the same. We raise our children in this context that there's this family of believers that are here to bless one another, to help one another, to support one another. I don't want to drift too far, but really the first 150 years or so of our country, you had two institutions that were propped up and provided more support than any government could ever support. Or one of those two institutions, family and church. These things were intertwined. Families living near each other, all going to the same church, supporting one another. Neighbors, helping neighbors. Of course, the seculars have come along and worked very hard to destroy both family and church. And these norms have fallen to the wayside, and what do we have? Chaos. Well, all that to say this, that's, that's the lesser of Jesus' twofold answer. The first part of his answer is just say, hey, listen, if you are denying yourself, you're joining a group of people, a local group, a local congregation who's also denied themselves, and they're here to help one another to bless one another. First of all, Peter, life in the kingdom, though mixed with hardship, has many blessings, even in this age. Again, it's not wrong to have belongings or money, especially if you stay vigilant in your pursuit of self-denial, especially if you're using those things to bless others. That's the first sort of point, and we see that in Mark. But back in Matthew, the bigger point the only one that Matthew brings to attention is that in the age to come, eternal life, it's all blessing all of the time. Matthew 19, verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I don't want to get too deep into 12 thrones here. Jesus just mentions it. He doesn't describe it, so I'm not going to do it either. Either. The point is, Peter, Peter, don't worry about blessing in this life. The fulfillment, the blessing, is in the life to come. Don't focus your attention on blessing and fulfilling all your physical desires right now. That is in the age to come. In this age, focus on self-denial. Ladies and gentlemen, hold loosely to the things of this world. Don't live your life seeking, worried, consumed with the stuff of the world. Yes, it's a general truth. We will find blessing in this life, especially in a church Most of us will enjoy some level of physical blessing. But don't be consumed with these things. Seek first the kingdom of God. We study this in Matthew 5. And all these things will be added to you. What things? Go back to Matthew 5. It's talking about shelter and food and clothes. Again, general truth. Most believers, this will be true for their entire life. God will provide for you. And the truth is, and if you're a part of this church, you know this, and some of the people in this church know this in a real way. It's happened to them. We won't let you not have clothes or shelter or food. We won't let that happen to our brothers and sisters here. We'll help you. So don't be consumed with these things. These will be provided for you. Focus on the life to come. This is not our home. We are traveling through to a world that is our eternal home. A wealthy person or even poor person, don't be deceived. The joys that stuff brings is, is minimal in respect to the joys of knowing Christ and the fellowship of a church. Jesus is not condemning having money or having stuff. But he's saying the joys of those things are fleeting. Store up treasure in heaven. Use your resources for eternal things. Anticipate the kingdom to come. Think about the kingdom to come. You'll find greater joy and hope. As you focus on that life, not this one. Don't forget the rich young ruler. Your life ultimately is an eternity with the Lord. Okay, that's point two. There's one last point, and it really is the central idea that Jesus repeats a couple of times in uh, this passage and the next. Verse 30, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Look down in chapter 20, verse 16, same thing. So the last will be first, and the first last. Jesus says the same thing in Mark 10. He says the same thing in Luke 13. What's the point? Number three, embrace the self-denial of faith. Embrace this idea. Embrace it. Hold it tightly. You know, a lot of us in America, American Christians, a lot of us grew up not hearing much about this aspect of faith, the self-denial aspect. You heard a lot about what God does for you, God's love for you. Maybe the teaching you received was a little light on what you are to give God. You are to be a living sacrifice. And maybe you were surprised a little back in Matthew 16 when Jesus says essentially being his disciple begins with self-denial. It's not about your best life, your personal fulfillment, getting all the physical blessings you can in this life. Your joy, according to Jesus, is not tied to how much you get and how much you keep. It's tied to giving, giving your time, giving your energy, perhaps even giving your money. It's very similar to a worship service. You know, we live in a day when church has become consumerized. And so what a lot of people are 
when they come to church, what they think, and a lot of what do pastors and teachers believe is, what do people get out of it? People come to church, what, what can I get out of it? Did I get anything out of that? Did you get anything out of that, pastor? I didn't get anything out of that, pastor. Let's go to a different church. I didn't get anything out of that. We don't come to worship with that attitude. We come to worship seeing what we can give. How can I worship you, Lord? How can I love you? What does your word say, and how can I live a life to honor you and to do what you say to obey it? I think this message is hard for us, and not just us. I think it's hard for everybody, even the first disciples of Jesus, even those people who had given up everything to follow Jesus. It was still hard for them not to focus on this temporal world, the acquiring of wealth and comfort. And so Jesus over and over calls them to self-denial. The first shall be last, and the last first. Uncommon for all of us. I think we need to simply accept the truth that self-denial is tied to our faith. Think about it. Why? How is self-denial united with faith? For one, self-denial is a way you love God, right? You believe the word about Christ, and so you sacrifice your own images of who Jesus is, who he ought to be, and what he's like. You say, I just believe the Christ of the Bible, not the Christ of my imagination. I sacrifice that false Christ I deny myself the Christ I want physically. And this is a, a problem going all the way back to the first century. What, they wanted a certain kind of Messiah. Jesus was not that Messiah. And instead of saying, I sacrifice that false Messiah for the real Messiah, they went on and ended up not even believing in the, believing in the real Messiah. Self-denial is a place, is, is a way that you also believe the words of Christ, the things that he says. He calls us to believe certain things, believe certain ways. We deny ourselves attitudes and behaviors that are natural to us. We deny ourselves theology, perhaps, that needs to be corrected by Jesus himself. We let go of those things to follow Jesus. We deny ourselves those things. Self-denial is also a way you love God because we've already established you focus on his kingdom. You focus on being full of the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, not on fulfilling your own desires, Set your minds on things above. And in order to follow God, you live life with the readiness that you might have to give up a lot. Maybe it is your money, your wealth, your health, your loved ones. Eventually, all of us will give up our lives. You accept this. You accept that self-denial is a part of genuine faith. Self-denial is also a, a way you love others, Right? You sacrifice for others. You love others in a costly way. Sometimes, yes, it is money and things, but most often it's time, effort, sacrificing your preferences, your opinions, so that others can have their way. Be last in line, Jesus says. Get the smallest piece of pie. Let others go before you. Have the least position. This is the polar opposite of living a life to acquire wealth. If you live to deny yourself for the glory of God and His kingdom and you live life seeking ways to sacrifice for God and for others, that's a self-denial of Christianity. And as believers, we all need to come to the place to simply accept this truth. Let me finish with this. I think a key to your happiness, though, is not just accepting it, but enjoying it. Enjoy the life of self-denial. Take it on with a happy heart. Don't just say, oh, i got to struggle through Christian life, and pastor says i got to deny myself. Embrace it. 
Uh, Gary Hendershot and I used to do a lot of free diving. Gary read the passage this morning. I uh, hadn't done that in a while, but back when we were diving, there was one time, and Gary reminded me of the details of the story, but there was one time my mask was just leaking and leaking, and just every time we, every time we went down, it would leak more, and I have to come up and empty my mask, and I was complaining and complaining and whining, and finally Gary said, don't complain. It's good training. And you know, that kind of stuck in my mind. I thought, you know, what a great way to look at life. Instead of whining, complaining about sacrifice and hardship and difficulty, hey, this is, this is good training. Instead of complaining about the fact that having faith is part and parcel with self-denial, instead of whining and moaning about it, why not just embrace it and say, oh, I like this. This is what living life for Christ is all about. The truth is, is not only will this make you more ready the next time, maybe you're called upon God by, by God to uh, deny yourself something great later on, this might be good training for you, but it makes you a generally happier person. This is the opposite of the emptiness of wealth. You can find fullness in self-denial. Great paradox of Christianity. So, three key ways in our pursuit of self-denial that we can become the kind of Christians, a humble Christian that God wants us to be. Beware, wealth is dangerous. Hope in the next life, not this one, and embrace the self-denial of faith. Enjoy this. Well, let's pray this is the life we would lead, and then we'll have, after this, we'll have time for communion. Father, we thank you for our time. We pray, Lord, that as uh, those who are not believers look on into Christianity, maybe today, thinking about their own hearts, I pray that they would see the need to surrender all to follow Jesus, and they would see that, that this is a greater joy. It's a better thing. I pray they would be enamored with that kind of joy that you have for those who deny everything follow after Jesus. All of us, Lord, may we remember that salvation, a salvation of self-denial, where we deny ourselves what we want in a Messiah, where we deny ourselves our own theories, we even deny ourselves all the things that we think are going to get us to heaven, and we trust only in Christ and surrender all to follow Him. Lord, may we lead these lives even today and this week we serve you in that way and find the accompanying joy that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.